This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. Hello, you're listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and the work of civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis, and this is episode 50. That's right, we made it. The half century, the big 5-0 um, and before I give details of the episode, I just want to say a big thank you to everyone who throughout the course of that 50 episodes has said sufficiently nice or not actively horrible things about the podcast that it's made it uh, seem worth keeping going. Um, and I'd certainly encourage everyone to take this as an opportunity to kind of delve back into the archive um, of the podcast, which at this point has sort of built up into quite a good resource, I think, of uh, um, uh, topics on philanthropy and civil society from all kinds of different angles. So, you know, go back, work your way through that and see what nuggets you can uh, dig up. Um, okay, so on to today's episode. Uh, so for this 50th episode, it's an interview uh, and a good one. So I hope you're going to enjoy this one. Um, and I spoke to Phil Buchanan, who is the founding chief executive of the Centre for Effective Philanthropy in the US. Uh, and the author of a new book that's just out called Giving Done Right, Effective Giving and Making Every Dollar Count, although I'm sure a lot of what he says would uh, work for pounds as well, or indeed any other currency. Um, And Phil and I chatted um, about all kinds of things to do with his book, but also more broadly some of what's going on in philanthropy and some of the big uh, issues and themes that are around at the moment. Um, Phil is a sort of prominent figure in the US talking about philanthropy issues and a, a commentator on those issues and particularly has become involved in a lot of the debates um, around the sort of current criticism swirling around philanthropy at the moment. So we talked about his take on what the the core role of philanthropy within society is, a question uh, listeners will know I've been interested in for a long time. Um, we talked about one of the big um, arguments in his book, which is uh, sort of challenging the idea that philanthropy needs to be more business-like somehow and actually saying that that is not only misguided but potentially harmful. Um, we talked uh, about some of the, the challenges that I mentioned and criticisms that are around at the moment from prominent people like Rob Reich and Anand Giridharadas. Um, and sort of Phil's take on why we might need to push back on some of those criticisms, which of them had some basis to them, which of them potentially were in danger of being a bit overblown, um, whether they might have a wider dampening effect on the kind of environment for giving and people's willingness to give. Um, And we also talked about the ways in which uh, philanthropy might need to change itself and become more democratic and sort of talk through some ideas like participatory grant making and around transparency and and those sorts of things. Um, So a good wide ranging chat. Um, So without further ado, let's go into it. Uh, And I will be back at the end of the podcast to do the usual bit of housekeeping and tidying up. Okay. Okay, great. So I'm here with Phil Buchanan. Hi, Phil. Hi, Rod. Thanks for having me on. No problem. Uh, and Phil is the founding chief executive of the Center for Effective Philanthropy in the US and the author of a new book called Giving Done Right, Effective Giving and Making Every Dollar Count. Um, so thanks very much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Um, maybe the best place to start is if you just tell us a bit about the book, kind of what inspired you to write it and what the, the sort of central purpose of it is. Yeah, I mean, I think the central purpose is to try to help donors uh, understand that giving effectively is uniquely challenging and provide them some of the resources and tips and examples and questions that can guide them through the process of figuring out how to do that. And I I think I was motivated to write it by a mix of um, sort of inspiration and frustration uh, after 18 years in this job, Um, inspiration about what is possible when giving is is done well. And uh, I believe, in fact, that at least in this country, which in the U.S., where I am, which is what I know best, 
uh, that g giving and the nonprofit sector that it supports has done way more good than, than people generally recognize. Um, and then on the other hand, the frustration piece was just watching folks make the same uh, kind of predictable mistakes um, as they often seek to apply their kind of um, mindsets and frameworks and approaches that worked for them in a business context uh, to the world of philanthropy. And then they realize that, uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily translate over that well. And, and just like, you know, you, you might be a great um, uh, basketball player, but that doesn't make you a great, um, you know, football or American soccer player, you know, that, that is, is, as we call it. Uh, similarly, you know, having made a lot of money in uh, Silicon Valley or, or wherever uh, doesn't necessarily mean you're going to come out of the gates as an effective philanthropist. And so um, that, that was some of the frustration that compelled me to want to try to pull it all together into a book. And yeah, it's it's definitely seems to be one of the kind of key theses in your book of thing, arguments you're trying to make that this idea that you know the, the way we can make philanthropy better is just to make it more business like is is not you know th there's probably some truth in in the idea of making giving more effective, but actually just saying that all you need to do is read across from the commercial sphere is wrong. Where where do you think that idea has kind of come from? Because it does seem to be very prevalent. And and what what do you think? you know, is, is kind of fundamentally wrong with it. Uh, to take the last part first, I think, I think one of the things that's fundamentally wrong with it is that it doesn't mean anything. Um, you know, what does it mean? I, I, I think, and you sort of alluded to this, people use it as a, uh, you know, a synonym for effectiveness, but that's not what like a business really means. Like a business could be like your corner dry cleaner, it could be like um, Volkswagen when they were cheating on emissions tests, or it could be like uh, Apple innovating and, and creating the iPhone. I mean, it, it, it doesn't have a lot of meaning. And I think we should focus instead on what will be effective in helping you to reach, reach your goals. And, um, and, and that involves recognizing many differences between the way business works and the way uh, many nonprofits work, for example, differences in in performance measurement, differences in the dynamics. So you're in a uh, not in a competitive context. You're more in a collaborative context in which you have to pursue shared strategies in, in philanthropy in order to have any any chance of working. But to your question about where does it come from, I mean, I, I think um, we we just had a conference last week. CEP's every other year conference. One of the speakers was Michael Sandel, the philosopher at Harvard, who argues that, you know, we have morphed from, uh, at least in the U.S., and I think this is probably true um, in, in, other, um, in other countries as well, uh, and to a certain extent uh, likely true in the U.K., that we have morphed from a market economy to a market society, and that there is this sort of um, business triumphalism that I think has been encouraged at business schools, um, that has been um, encouraged by those at consulting firms who um, are interested in in sort of expanding uh, their influence, and um, it, you know it's hard to know where it all started. But but I, it definitely feels to me like we have lost clarity about the fact that um, there are things that business is well positioned to do. There are things that government is well positioned to do. There, there are things that nonprofits supported by philanthropy are well positioned to do. And um, they are pretty distinct, actually, roles that each sector plays. Sometimes there's overlap. Sometimes there's opportunity for collaboration across sectors. A lot of times um, these sectors are in healthy tension with each other. And even so, or maybe because of that tension, each actually needs the other uh, to be their best uh, in order for society to function as well as we would all want it to. Uh, but somehow we've got on into this kind of, you know, sector war mentality in which, um, in which uh, I think many folks want to declare that business has all the answers. And, and then, and then actually you, I think you see some critics of philanthropy on the left who say, um, no, actually um, it, it's business. I mean, sorry, rather it's government that needs to, address certain issues. Um, and sometimes I agree with them. 
and then the practical reality is they're not doing that. And, and so, so nonprofits and philanthropy end up addressing the issues that markets or government either can't or won't for whatever set of reasons. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is, you know, one of the most fascinating questions about philanthropy, which is where where its role is in society, either kind of practically or ideally between the state and the market. What's what's your kind of take on what, you know, what that unique role is or what some of the features of what philanthropy and, you know, philanthropy funding civil society uniquely brings to the table that isn't just kind of making up for the deficiencies of the state or the market? Right. I mean, I think there are so many different different roles. Um, there, one is is obviously um, sort of risk taking and, and innovation um, on 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 big challenges. Um, so, you know, you can see that like play out, for example, in uh, research that has led to vaccines or um, cures, even in some cases, you know, that, that, um, that, that just might not have been funded any other way because, uh, people didn't see the potential return on, on the investment or, or whatever. I think there's obviously a crucial role for just supporting kind of pillar institutions in our, in our, um, our communities and in our, in our nations. And, and I think that, um, these institutions can can often take the long view uh, in a way that 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 business and government can't because they're always worried about the next election or or which way you know the stock price is going. Um, I think that um, unfortunately, certainly at least in this country, there is a big role that nonprofits play in in taking care of the most vulnerable in our society. And, and this is where, you know, we could probably, m- m- many folks would agree, I would agree that, that, that sometimes that work, which is supported by philanthropy, uh, I wish it was something that, that, that the government would take on and that we elected people who um, believed in helping the most vulnerable in our society rather than what we currently have, which is, um, um, demonization often of of the vulnerable, uh, but but there you have it, and so you you spend time with community health organizations, for example, who are helping the poorest of the poor who have nowhere else to go, and the work that many of these organizations are doing is heroic, and and um, you 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 know that everybody in the neighborhood knows that that's where you go when you when you need help and. And a natural disaster strikes, and that's where everybody gathers uh, around that nonprofit because they have the the volunteers and the staff who can mobilize to help folks. So there's so many different roles uh, that nonprofits play, and 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 I think and and it's supported in significant part by philanthropy. And and most of our lives have been touched uh, by that work in ways that we recognize, and often in ways that we don't as as well. All of that is not to say that there aren't lots of, you know, problems or challenges or ways philanthropy and nonprofits could be more effective and better. Um, but it is to say that I think we do tend to, at least in this country, uh, and you you would have to tell me, you know, your perspective. Um, I would be curious, but that we undervalue um, the, that role, and we 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 almost uh, describe sometimes here the nonprofit sector as if it's the place. Um, you know, people work if they can't if they can't make it in the business world. Where I think it's almost like the opposite that's true that 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 a leader of a nonprofit uh, has to do everything that the leader of an equivalent sized business uh, would have to do and a ton more. And it's actually a more challenging role, requiring um, even greater sort of leadership ability. Yeah, I mean that would definitely resonate over here, and I'm sure with plenty of people uh, listening who work for. The nonprofits and charities, uh, you know, in in the UK and elsewhere, would would very much kind of concur with that. Um, and I certainly, you know, agree on on your um, sort of perception of how the debate about philanthropy plays out. Because over here, it's the same in that it's very difficult, I think, to have a nuanced conversation about what its appropriate role is because it gets hijacked by people who ideologically either 
see it as a way of pushing an idea um, of kind of small state or limited government or on the flip side pushing for kind of greater state involvement so it, it's a it's a difficult conversation to to have with with any nuance um i just i wanted to pick up on something you you mentioned there about one of the the kind of key features of philanthropy or strengths um often argued to be uh, its ability to take risks or to drive innovation and i know this is certainly something that rob reish kind of puts forward in in his work about the idea of discovery being one of the the key features um that endowed philanthropy particularly funds um i guess a couple of things about that i i totally buy that argument in theory i'm really interested in your perception of to what extent it genuinely plays out in reality? I mean, how much philanthropy do you think really kind of meets the criterion of being innovative and how much actually isn't really kind of taking as much risk as it perhaps should? I mean, it's it's hard to judge. I mean, when we, we surveyed foundation CEOs and did a bunch of interviews with them as well in a research project in 2016, and one of the really interesting insights was that the CEOs of large foundations in the United States believe that philanthropy was way too risk averse and that foundations should take greater greater advantage of their of their unique opportunity to take risk. Um, you know what's interesting about that kind of research is generally people people see their own foundations in a more positive light than they see <laughs> foundations generally. And sometimes I wonder whether, whether they're underestimating, um, you know, somewhat underestimating the degree to which that does, that does happen. I'm sure it doesn't happen enough, but, but I also look at, um, you know, some of the examples that come to mind where folks have gone out there and, and really, really pushed for things that didn't seem achievable that were then achieved. Um, so, uh, you know, there's a million different examples, but, but you look at, um, you know, the work of some of the, I mean, we, we, we have a terrible uh, criminal justice system in this country that incarcerates way too many people. And, um, and at the same time, there has been progress in certain areas, a foundation called public welfare and others said, you know, what if we tried to change policy at the state level to reduce, um, to reduce the number of juveniles that were, in, that, that are incarcerated I, you know, I, I think it was a big risk in the sense that there was no, there wasn't a lot of reason to believe that that there would there would be a lot of openness to that. But there was, and and you know, state by state, and then across the country, they were able to uh, contribute to a decline in the number of juveniles incarcerated in this country by half in about twelve years. Uh, you look at um, support for. Uh, innovative ways to help, you know, low income uh, mothers, for example, have, uh, you know, raise kids who have better life outcomes, ultimately, and the the ways in which philanthropy supported a program here called Nurse Family Partnerships, which has been rigorously evaluated and, and, and shown to be highly effective in terms of um, pairing nurses with expect, expecting um, uh, single moms and and um, both before and after birth and helping uh, to really change change outcomes um, you you look at um, again what I've already re- referenced in terms of of um, immunizations and vaccines historically that that were supported by by philanthropy you look at things that we don't know whether they're going to be effective but there's certainly uh, they're certainly ambitious, like like the work to try to try to affect climate change that many large foundations um, have come together to support through something called Climate Works uh, here in the United States. Um, you know, have they made a dent? Uh, I, I I don't know. Am I glad that they're trying? Uh, yes. Uh, e- even if even if their chance of success is relatively low, the payoff is high enough and the risks are big enough that I sure am glad glad that they're doing it. So I think my answer is, yes, probably there is some risk aversion. Um, Sometimes people worry too much about their reputation, uh, you know, et cetera. And I also think there are all around us probably more examples of philanthropy stepping up and taking risk uh, than than maybe we realize until we really reflect and and start to go through the laundry list of, of examples. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I agree. There's, you know, when you start to look, there's loads of great examples of social change that has been driven by philanthropy and philanthropic organisations that have been willing to take those risks. I guess one of the things I think is really interesting is looking at some of that stuff with the benefit of hindsight it's it's easy to feel kind of uniformly positive about it because the ones that paid off are the ones that we we sort of see right in in the here and now i guess it strikes me it's kind of more difficult sometimes to know which of those those risks will pay off and i think particularly i'm, I'm thinking here around the kind of increasing tendency towards big bet philanthropy and and it seems to be tied in with donors coming out of silicon valley what what's your sense there of you know the 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 sort of challenge at the other end of the scale, which is they're definitely willing to take risks, but actually, where does the line between the willingness to take risk and kind of taking too much risk fall potentially? Yeah, no, that that's a great question. And there's there's right, we could also go through a long list of really um, probably, um, and again, hindsight is is always twenty twenty. But but I think we could go through probably a long list of of stupid risks that that didn't lead. Um, to the kind of change that was desired. And, and I think that um, I worry about, about any effort to say, you know, this is the way it should be done. So, uh, you know, big bets make sense in the context in which they make sense. And small bets make sense in the context in which they make sense. So, so to give you an example, um, the Gates Foundation, I think, you know, has made a big bet on on immunization as a way to um, to decrease childhood uh, mortality globally, and that makes a lot of sense because because much is known about what it takes to prevent people from dying, young children from dying needlessly of things they don't have to and shouldn't be dying from, and so you look at. Um, and, and the Gates Foundation, obviously, is just one player in, 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 in what has been an incredible drop in childhood mortality from uh, beginning long before the Gates Foundation existed in you know, 1960 when the rate was 18.5% to 2015 when it was something like 4.5%. And, and that's amazing. And then, and then you look at their work in U.S. public education where I think they brought a similar mindset to a completely different context, and 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 they looked for the analog to the vaccine or the technological breakthrough. Uh, and I think this is what a lot of Silicon Valley types do, right? Which is to say, um, and obviously Bill Gates is, Seattle, uh, you know, uh, Pacific Northwest, not Silicon Valley, but you know what I'm saying. Like the technology entrepreneur is looking for the breakthrough that's going to like disrupt. Uh, education or poverty as if that was as easy as, as Uber or Lyft disrupting the taxi business. Not to say that that was easy, but it's a heck of a lot easier. And so then you see these um, kind of big bets on things like breaking large public high schools into small schools, which Gates Foundation initially supported in their early work in U.S. public education. Oh, that didn't have the outcomes that they that they hoped for, so they shifted and they said, no, let's let's focus on teacher evaluation and tying teacher evaluation to teacher uh, compensation. Oh, that didn't have the results that we hoped for. Uh, let's move to core curriculum, you know. And it's just like repeatedly looking for the one thing, which makes sense when you know that there is one thing, like a vaccine. It doesn't make sense when you're working on a, a, a sort of much more uh, kind of interdependent issue in which you have to do many things simultaneously in order to affect the kind of shift in outcomes or results that you want to see. And so that contextual thinking about strategy is really, really important. And I think sometimes people seem to miss that step or to, to want to oversimplify or overestimate the degree to which a single intervention uh, can solve all the problems. Yeah, absolutely. And it strikes me that brings us back to your point before about the the, the kind of myth that, about taking a business-like approach to, to philanthropy, because actually that seems reflective to me of 
uh, a mindset forged by the way in which those people have made their wealth in the first place. If you've made your wealth by kind of taking a disruptive approach to technology, you're almost inevitably going to think that that's the approach that'll work when it comes to giving that money away. And I'm sure that kind of is reflected in in other industries where people have made money in, in different ways. And is the challenge there to get those people when they come to philanthropy to to sort of accept the reality that actually you might have to take more of a sort of systems thinking approach or not just look for that one silver bullet and actually it might be about more kind of incremental change across a whole spectrum of different things yeah and exactly and and uh, sort of humility too uh to recognize that i i always say that like in business you want your strategy to be yours alone because it's a zero-sum competitive dynamic so i was a strategy consultant in the corporate world for a little while and we guarded very closely our our work with our clients on strategy and and certainly wouldn't have wanted any of our clients competitors to know what the strategy of our clients were and the client wouldn't have wanted that either um you want your strategy in business to be yours yours only and 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 in in philanthropy it's it's quite the opposite i mean it has to be a shared strategy to have any chance of working but I think too many big donors and foundations um, cook up their own strategy without really understanding the perspective of grantees, the perspective of the people whose lives uh, they're trying to influence, who, who after all are really the best experts on their own lives. Um, and, and, and so something, you know, makes sense on the 61st floor uh, of the, building where the foundation is with um, the sort of consultants in khakis with their PowerPoints, uh, but it doesn't um, actually play out on the ground because, because it hasn't been informed by the folks who are, who are closest to the ground and best, best positioned to know. So strategy, well, really, really important, plays out totally differently in the, in the business world and the philanthropic world. And, and I think, you know, people, just don't seem to necessarily recognize that i think that's really interesting and i think that that point you're making there about trying to having a an approach which is about deciding for people on their behalf what might be the solutions to their problems and then designing them and implementing them not only do you risk them being less effective but it strikes me it also plays into a lot of the concerns about the the kind of wider legitimacy of of philanthropy and whether it's kind of anti-democratic because actually you know I guess one of the things about being able to innovate is that you do to some extent have to be able to step aside from the status quo and, and run counter to it. But the challenge there, if you're talking about very large sums of money and a very small number of people taking the decisions, is that that raises some quite awkward questions. Um, do you think there are, that is a concern that you know we should be taking on board? And, and what you know what ways do you think there are of mitigating some of that? I, I think it's absolutely a concern that folks should consider and um you know i mean i i one one sort of illustrative story that i tell in the book is is which was widely reported it's not like it hadn't been reported before but was again and not to pick on him but was um bill gates's initiative to um encourage poor people in developing countries to raise chickens and um and actually there was a blog post on that on the gates foundation blog in which Bill Gates or someone who wrote the, I mean, it was his byline, uh, um, said, if I were poor, that's what I would do. I would raise chickens, uh, that it was the best way out of poverty for poor people. And, and, uh, and the government of Bolivia said, um, you know, who, who do you think you are telling us um, how, to, how to live? Or like, we're some backward people living 500 years ago, I think is what the like finance minister was quoted as saying in the Financial Times, and and then the the Guardian had this great headline, which was "Cluck you, Bill Gates." Um, and 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 the reason I I tell that story is because, um, is because it it's actually quite beside the point whether Bill Gates was right or not about that being the most effective way out of poverty. Um, you need folks to 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 agree um, and to be a part of the process of of charting, you know, their 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 own future. Um, and so anyway, that was a, a bit of a um tangent from your question. I, I think that the I think philanthropy can 
in the ways that you describe, potentially be anti-democratic. And I also think it can strengthen democracy and, and, and often has, and it's about the, the way that it's done. Um, so if, if you are, um, I, I think my argument is, is that philanthropy at its best actually can lift up the perspectives of the most vulnerable um, who often are not heard by their elected representatives or, or may not even be fully engaged in the political process. And, um, and, you know, philanthropy at its best can be empowering and expand people's rights. Um, and uh, we've seen that, uh, we, you know, we've, we've seen that, for example, in the uh, LGBT rights movement here uh, in the United States, where philanthropy played a crucial role in helping, um, you know, gay and lesbian people secure greater civil rights, which, in my view, it expands democracy as, as I think about it and define it. So, so I, I think it's something that people should take very seriously, the, the power that they have and the responsibility they have to use that wisely. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. I think there actually is a counterweight to that sort of tyranny of the majority that you can get in electoral democracy. Philanthropy can play a huge role in bringing marginalised issues or communities, you know, to attention or giving them them voice. So at its best, absolutely, you know, it it can strengthen democracy. And I, you know, very very strongly argue in in favour of that. Um, I guess one thing I was thinking when when you were mentioning that is partly it's about you know the specific choice of cause and acting uh, using philanthropy as a tool to to kind of promote those or bring them to mainstream attention but also i guess there's an interesting question about whether the way in which you you do uh, philanthropy uh kind of um adds to or detracts from um from democracy and i'm thinking here about the increasing focus on models like participatory grant making what's your sort of take on that and and have you seen some good examples of people genuinely finding models that shift power as well as money in philanthropy i haven't seen i mean i've seen a fair amount written about participatory grant making i can't say that i've had a lot of direct um, visibility into it being practiced at the foundations that we work with for example uh and um i think it'll be interesting interesting to see that. I mean, I, I think uh, see sort of how it plays out because there does seem to be an increased focus on it um, at a board and, and, and other foundations. I, I think that um, there, there's a whole range of, of sort of um, ways to share power, uh, ways to get feedback and be informed by that feedback. Obviously, a big part of what CEP does uh, is try to help foundations get candid feedback from their grantees, uh, as well as their declined applicants, other different populations, um, including in the case of an initiative that we've done in the area of education called Youth Truth, intended beneficiaries. Um, I, you know, I don't think it's always feasible, right, to, to hand over the decision-making uh, to the folks whose lives you seek to improve, because um, sometimes, for example, they're, they're small children, you know, or, um, or, or sometimes there isn't a human, you know, intended beneficiary of your work. Uh, if you're working, uh, for example, on conservation of habitats for wildlife or whatever, but I think anything that gets folks thinking about um, how they are surfacing and engaging a variety of different perspectives and being informed by that in their philanthropic work is, is helpful. And, and, and one of the things that always sort of confounds me is when I speak to new big individual donors who are just getting going on their um, philanthropy and uh, somebody will suggest, oh, you should connect with Bill and I'll chat with the person and say, who have you been speaking to? And it's usually a long list of um, consultants and other donors and, and, often missing are uh, nonprofit staff or the people those organizations are are seeking to help and and one of the things that I've done in 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 writing the book and 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 since actually is just try to spend as much time as possible just shadowing 
nonprofit leaders working in different communities, not not like having lunch with them, but actually shadowing them and seeing what their job is like and talking to the to the clients, um, you know, the young people at an organization that is trying to recruit young people out of gang life or um, the uh, poor people who are coming to um, a uh, community based organization that helps folks get the benefits that they might not know they're entitled to or the food that they need from a food pantry or a referral to a domestic uh, violence you know, shelter or whatever it is they need. I mean, that kind of just, uh, as Brian Stevenson would ca call it, getting proximate to the people and the problems you're seeking to address, I think inevitably leads to um, better and more effective philanthropy. Absolutely, that's um, no, I, I totally agree. Um, and I, I think on that that question of you know using models um, potentially like participatory grant making, but or just you know actually just taking the time to understand the needs of the people and communities that are the intended beneficiaries um, of your philanthropy. The, the other way in which it strikes me this is relevant to you know one of these bigger debates that's um, uh, swirling around at the moment is around the the criticism that. Um, you know, no matter how well-intentioned, philanthropy and particularly elite philanthropy will will struggle to address structural inequalities in society, essentially because it's a product of those inequalities. So actually kind of, you know, and this is Anand Giridharadas's uh, kind of, or at least one of his arguments, one of the the ones that I think, you know, is, is probably more nuanced. Um, which is, you know, that 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 idea that actually you can't use the the master's tools to dismantle a master's house or whatever the the quote is. Um, do you do you what's your take on that criticism? And then do you think that people in the philanthropy and foundation world kind of accept some of that criticism, even if not always the way in which it's phrased? And are they finding ways to to kind of navigate that challenge? I think Anand, who we just had speak at our conference last week. Um, and, you know, I have said this in many different forums, paints with far too broad a brush. And that, uh, so, and that, that I don't believe that it's true that philanthropy can't, can't affect, um, you know, deep change. I, because, simply because, the resources were created, you know, via a system that we would all agree, you know, isn't, isn't, isn't perfect and, and isn't fair. I, I don't, I don't really follow that logic. And I see, um, I see donors who are deeply committed to working on questions of inequality, um, people working, uh, you know, a billionaire who made his money in technology who is trying to do something about the way schools are funded in this country so that um, there isn't a relationship between, you know, the, the wealth of the neighborhood you're, you ha your, your family happens to live in and the quality and funding of, of the schools you go to. I, I feel like, you know, you look at people like, um, uh, who I mentioned before, Tim Gill and others who said, I, I don't, I, you know, I, I want gay and lesbian people to have, um, to have the kind of opportunity that, that other people have, including the freedom to marry, you know, who they love. I, I look at the work folks are doing, again, on criminal justice reform, which, I mean, there is this funny way in which um, we have had for, I think, 20 years, um, one set of critiques from folks who say uh, philanthropy and nonprofits aren't effective enough and actually business has all the answers. And I appreciate Anand's sort of help in exploding that idea, you know, and, and I think he, by virtue of having worked himself at McKinsey and been at the Aspen Institute, you know, had, had probably front row seat into a particularly like nauseating uh, version of that mindset. Uh, but now we have him and, and some other critics who are, who are basically saying, well, no, 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 it's, it's, you know, it's government that, that, that's going to do it all. Um, and, and philanthropy has no business uh, working on these issues because, because government 
uh, should handle them. Well, government's not handling them, you know, and and uh, and so um, we can or or they conflate frustration with um, a approach to taxation that that I share a lot of frustration with. I mean, I too think, you know, in this country, wealth uh, anyway, the the wealthy are taxed at far too low a rate. There's no reason that, you know, taxes from capital gains should be lower than taxes from, you know, regular jobs. This is craziness. Many of the donors that 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 I work with and the Center for Effective Philanthropy works with agree that it's craziness. But meantime, here we are on on planet Earth, not designing like a utopian society from scratch uh, with, you know, we can simultaneously work on affecting change in the next election and try to encourage those who have resources to do something good with them that actually creates more equity uh, in, in the future. And I think a lot of donors do want to do that. And, and I think that, uh, you know, there's a, there's a kind of uh, reasoning by, by extreme anecdote or, uh, you know, equation of, of the Sacklers to sort of donors generally that I think is, it's, I, I actually think it's intellectually dishonest. Uh, and, and I worry that, that it, it, uh, you know, it can have um, a negative effect on, on the perception of, of what philanthropy can do and therefore people's enthusiasm for engaging in effective philanthropy that actually really does get at some of these really deep problems that are not being successfully addressed right now by the other sectors. I mean, it's great to, to hear you say that because I, I mean, I thoroughly agree that I think there's a lot of you know, interesting and valid points made by, you know, quite a few of the, the critics um, that are around at the moment. But I, I totally agree that the they paint a sort of uniform picture of philanthropy based on what I, I see as quite a small subset of elite philanthropy that's quite US focused, that actually really doesn't reflect the experience in many other parts of the world. And, you know, the, the sort of the, 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 the kind of vast spectrum of things that I would see as counting as philanthropy and and as you say right. you know a critique that that stems from the position that you find the sacklers in in no way relates to in a small local philanthropist in in a part of the uk for instance whereas i think the the problem is people have picked up on some of these critiques and then just read them across to to other contexts without understanding that and, and i you know i i agree i think it's creating a sort of a wider uh, negative environment that that will potentially discourage people from from giving um yeah so i mean in terms of uh some of those those critiques you know which which of them to your mind um do you think are actually the ones that we you know should perhaps be paying attention to and and which of them do you think are the ones that that we need to sort of push back on a bit more yeah i mean i well clearly as i've already explained i mean i, I agree with the the critique of the sort of market triumphalist business knows best actually you know markets will solve all our problems kind of uh for lack of a better way of saying it bs you know that i think is 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 rampant and uh and and i think um not helpful so i i agree with that i mean i think rob um rice raises uh good questions about about philanthropy and democracy, but I think he undervalues the degree or underappreciates the degree to which um, a strong civil society of organizations that are independent of uh, government and business actually strengthens and in the words of uh, the American historian Olivier Zunz, who's written a great history of philanthropy here, it enlarges actually our democracy um, uh, at, at its best. And so, so I, th I think there's, you know, there's something to Rob's critique and I, I, I don't agree. I don't agree with the sort of the, with, with all of it. Um, I think that, um, yeah, I, I guess I think that it's funny. There's this dynamic right now where um, 
at least here, uh, institutional philanthropy seems to have completely embraced the critiques, right? So, and, and, and uh, you know, it's interesting to see that Anand, who spoke at our conference last week uh, in conversation with Jeff Rakes, which was really interesting, uh, moderated, you know, very well by my colleague, Grace Nicolette here. Um, but he's speaking at every conference, you know, and, and is flying around in his, you know, required first class travel to all these different conferences, paid uh, nice honorarium by philanthropy to, to then tell philanthropy, uh, you know, how, how messed up and dysfunctional it is. And, and I, I think it's, it's, you know, useful to hear critiques. But I think, and, and, and I think that often, and Ben Soskis has, has who, you, who I know you know, has, has written about this in, in the last couple of decades, there probably hasn't been enough critique, uh, but that doesn't mean we have to like agree with all critique. You know, it's also healthy to have some debate about it and to, and as, you know, as we're talking here today, uh, you know, the, a conversation which we say, well, what do we, you know, what do we agree with? What do we, what do we disagree with? And, and so I think we have to be able to simultaneously like engage the criticism and push back and remind people of the good that can be done and, uh, and of the really, uh, really wonderful examples. And one of the strange things I think about both Anand's book and Rob's book is that they don't mention nonprofits. Um, so lost in all of this kind of esoteric discussion about uh, philanthropy and about sort of what our ideal society would look like is sort of the day-to-day -day challenge of the nonprofits and their staff who are supported uh, by philanthropy working um, on challenges right now. And, and uh, I wish we could put them a little bit more front and center in this conversation about, about philanthropy um, in a way that, that I just don't see, see happening. And, and that that brings me back onto something that I that I wanted to ask that that kind of goes back to your point about uh, you know the idea that philanthropy needs to be more business like, um, which is you know you, one of the bits of the book you notice that there's a kind of worrying tendency for that the expertise of nonprofit staff and people in that that sector to be somewhat devalued, particularly by yeah. you know philanthropists coming from from a business background. And there's obviously this this idea of the you know the overhead myth and that all of the the kind of that expertise is seen as a kind of unhelpful or unnecessary additional cost that that can't exactly. really be justified. Right. Um, you kind of can you just say a bit about that overhead myth and what your sort of take on it is and why we need to push back on it? Yeah, I I I think it stems from. I, I've tried to think about like where does this come from? Why do people focus on these simplistic ratios? And I think it's because of the frustration that folks feel about the lack of a universal performance measure by which you can compare organizations working in very different spaces. And, and, and there isn't ever going to be that kind of universal performance measure. And so, um, so but, but, but people have a hard time accepting that because they feel that measurement is very important. And I agree uh, if it's done thoughtfully about the things that actually matter. And so, so the, the problem is that to the extent that we are not investing in, you know, people, then we are undermining effectiveness. And, and I was struck, I write about a, a number of different nonprofit leaders in the book, and I was struck by very different kinds of organizations. Executive directors um, feel frustrated by the same problem, which is, look, if I don't have multi-year and, and unrestricted support, it is very difficult for me to hire and retain uh, the, the best people. And, and when you think about um, an organization like uh, one of the ones I talked about, it's called UTech here in Massachusetts that works, and I sort of alluded to them before, but that works with um, often violent gang members to try to get them out of uh, gang life, get them employed at uh, they have they run a mattress recycling facility and a woodworking shop that that makes um, cutting boards that get sold to Whole Foods, the grocery chain here. Uh, they they um, they have a cafe. Um, they provide support to folks in all kinds of ways to get them on a different path. They have a very low recidivism rate, 
Um, well, the workers who are doing these jobs, the, the street workers, they call them, you know, they're showing up at emergency rooms on Saturday night after someone was shot because that's the moment that, when they can reach people and say, you don't want to be in this life anymore. They're visiting folks in, in prisons. They're showing up at funerals. Uh, these are not easy jobs. And, and, and uh, so we undermine folks' effectiveness when we don't fund them in ways that allow them uh, to, to hire and retain people, to invest in the technology and the infrastructure they need. And we need to be focused on the question of, you know, what are you trying to do? What are your results? Uh, you know, how do you know that you're having success? And then have faith in people to allocate the leaders who we should trust if we're ma making them gifts or grants to allocate the budget as they see fit to be as effective as, as, as possible. Uh, and that, that trust or faith, you know, seems too often to be missing. Yeah, and I think that's a uh, reassuringly positive note to to sort of bring things uh, to a close. I'm aware we're in danger of running long. Um, obviously, you know, I'd encourage anybody to to go away and and read the book, and I'll put links in the, the show notes to it. But is um, you know, before we sign off, is there anything else that you'd like to kind of flag up to people that you've got coming up, or any kind of closing thoughts you want to leave people with? Uh, just to just to say, first of all, I've really enjoyed this conversation with you and, and um, appreciated your, your thoughtful perspectives on, on philanthropy and, and just that um, to remember that, well, critique is crucial and we should um, engage it thoughtfully. Uh, we should also not be afraid to tell the story of uh, philanthropy and nonprofits uh, that that are making a difference, and and to look at also what we can learn from the positive examples, um, because there are a lot out there. And I think in our in our debate, for whatever reason, I guess because you know critique and bad news gets more attention than the positive stories we can learn from. We 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 need to pay more attention. I think I think to the latter, and I I hope that we can do that in our sector in the coming months and years. Great. Well, thanks again for, for coming on the podcast, Phil, and all the best with uh, promoting the book. And, you know, maybe we can uh, get you on uh, at some point in the future uh, to kind of pick up on a few of these things. Thank you. It's been really fun talking to you. I appreciate it. Great. Well, thanks very much again to Phil for making the time to come on the podcast. It's very uh, enjoyable having the chance to, to chat to him. Uh, and if you've enjoyed uh, the things that, that we were talking about there, I'll put links in the show notes to um, where you can find Phil's book and some of the articles that he's written and a few things that um, I've written that are kind of relevant to things we were talking about. If you're interested more broadly in issues around philanthropy and civil society, why not check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website? Uh, follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis for all that and more. Uh, an increasing amount of me talking about sci-fi for some reason, but if you can uh, stick with me through that, you also get all the philanthropy stuff. Um, if you've got any ideas for people I could speak to on the podcast in the future or topics we could cover, drop me a line at givingthought at cafonline.org. Um, other than that, just like, subscribe, tell all your friends about it, give us a nice review on wherever you get your podcasts, and I will see you next time. Okay, bye!